Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. As always, this podcast is brought to you guys at patreon.com slash here in apologetics. Today I have Tim from Invoking Theism, and we're looking at Richard Dawkins's five best reasons why there is no God. So Tim, what's up? How you doing? So man, thank you so much for having me on. Love coming on your channel every single time. Always something really interesting to discuss and talk about. We always usually kind of go deeper and more nuanced with this stuff. So, you know, I feel like we should just keep that uh, that pattern going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, today we're going to get right into this video. Um, it's a short video. If you want to watch the full thing, we're going to play the full thing. The link is down below. Um, but like, what are the five best reasons to not believe in God? Let's look at what Richard Dawkins says. What are the five best reasons why there is no God? What are the five reasons why there are no fairies? The, the onus is not upon an atheist to say why there is not something. The onus is on a theist to say why there is. Uh, having said that, it is a very interesting question because a universe with a God would be a very different kind of universe than one without. So the most. All right. So, Tim, what are you thinking so far? Well, I, I think that um, if I heard him correctly, I feel like his uh, his little opening there kind of um, kind of works against itself because he says it's not on the onus isn't on the atheist to providing kind of demonstration that God doesn't exist. And then he, then he says at the end that of that, that the world would look uh, very different if there was a God. So to me, what that says is this is, this is basic, like, this is kind of like my own epistemology. When I approach like the evidence for and against theism, I, I say, okay, what, uh, you know, given this hypothesis or given this piece of evidence, like, and if we assume one hypothesis is true, like how should the world look like conditional on what we know, right? Like that's pretty much what he's saying. Like, can, like by what we, if we assume that theism is true, then what should we expect to predict about the world? Well, if he has an idea of what we should be able to predict, then that also tells him that if we don't predict that, then this, we live in a non-God world, right? A non-God world is a world where atheism is true or, or at least world's where uh, theories that aren't committed to God existing are more true than false are more probably true than false. So when he says things like that, like, well, I don't have to, I don't have any burdens of justification. Um, but I also, at the same time, know what the world would look like, you know, if a God did exist, then I'm like, okay, well then basically what you're saying is we have evidence against the existence of God. And that's literally giving justification for atheism. So, like, did you did you catch that? Yeah, no, it is interesting. Like, it is, I see what you're saying. Um, one thing I'd add here is, like, it's interesting how he compares God to a fairy. Uh, because I wonder, like, and I encourage people that, like, would use this argument. Oh, like, God's, like, believing God's, like, believing a fairy. How many people who, like, say they're, like, Christians, Muslims, Jews, maybe, like, just philosophical theists think that God is just a fairy? Um, I don't know of many people that think that, like, a fairy created the whole universe. Uh, but if you ask most traditional monotheists they'd say god created the universe like these are two very different scenarios and i think it's just an unfair analogy that just needs to go away because it's just not accurate so yeah yeah that, that's a really good point because like um you know like i i so we can either get really really philosophical and really nuanced with this or like it's really cool kind of like what this simple point brings up but um you know it's this idea of like you know what diverse disciplines and fields 
of literature, not fields of literature, but fields, the literature pertaining to those fields, um, are at all uh, making um, analytic, like rigorous and sophisticated analytic, like treatises of this idea that fairies are somehow needed to be a part of our ontology. Like mm -hmm. that just, that's not a thing, but like mm -hmm. every year, and it's been this way for so long, new publications, Rutledge, Blackwell, um, the uh, Oxford, they're always coming out with more and more philosophy of religion texts. They're always coming out with more and more um, ways in which God belief should be taken seriously. Um, the same isn't said for these things over here. So in a way, it's uh, I think it's a very intellectually lazy way to shrug off or at least uh, lessen the seriousness of theism as a, you know, intellectual competitor on the table for like an actual worldview. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm always the same. I'm with you on that, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's a great way to flesh it out, Tim, just thinking about like, well, there's a lot of people like publishing in philosophy of religion, like talking about like models of God, arguments for God, things like this. Uh, if it's analogous to fairies, like where's all the books and arguments of people defending the existence of fairies and like different models of fairies and, and things like that? Uh, it just exactly. seems like it's not there. Exactly. Yeah. The most important reason is there simply are no reasons for the existence of a God. So uh, the, the, the reasons against them, what you tick off on your fingers, one by one, the, the alleged reasons why there should be a God, such as the argument from design. Things look so beautifully designed, bananas and apples and things like that, and humans and, and kangaroos and so on. And they look as though they've been designed because that's what Darwinian natural selection does. It makes them look as though they're designed. Uh, it produces a very good simulacrum of design. I think that's the most important reason against that Darwin has exploded once and for all the argument from design. Uh, other reasons that have been offered, for example, people claim to have a subjective... Okay, so before we get into these other reasons, what do you think? Did Darwin just like destroy design arguments like once and for all, Tim? No, no, far, far from it. I think that if we're going to um, be as charitable as possible and steel man this argument, I would say that all uh, Darwin did in leaving his legacy behind for... Uh, contemporary theories of evolutionary biology to build off of uh, is that it made us rethink how we think about the uh, shape of the biological sphere, we could say. And um, I think that what that, I think at most what it did is it rendered certain species of design arguments implausible or at least unconvincing, right? Uh, like this whole, like, this is like the watchmaker thesis, right? Where, um, and I think Graham Oppie knows this, right? Like, you know, uh, with a watch, right? You have all these um, uh, kind of interesting parts, gears and things, and they're, and they're coming together in, in, in very interesting and intricate ways, right? But biology doesn't work the same way, you know, as a, it's not um, uh, a one-to-one -one, like analogous in the same way that a watch is um, or the way that a watch is built, right? In biology, we don't find gears. We don't find things like that. We find, you know, metabolizing structures and, and whatnot. And if we're able to trace these to um, previous lineages and just gradual improvements on those things, gradual developments of different kinds of structures and whatnot, then it's not like a watch, 
that's put together by a person. Um, and so biology takes on a very different uh, kind of shape than human artifacts do. Biological artifacts are very different from human artifacts. But even with that being said, um, can the design, can, can the core thesis of the design argument that there are certain artifacts of nature that reflect intentionality or mind-like properties, then I think we can still salvage that. We don't need that other thesis, right? So I think about these things in terms of the genus and species, and this is very helpful, which is like, you can have a genus, which is like the general like category, the general theory. And then there are many different species of understanding how that theory could, or that category could be true, right? For example, when it comes to Christianity, right? Like, you know, think about the three main branches of Christianity, Protestantism, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Catholicism. Uh, and what you could say is, well, these are different species of the one category, you know, Christian theism. And these are all different ways in which Christ, uh, Christianity could be true. Now, if we were to find out that Protestantism were false, well, it doesn't decrease the probability of Christian theism being false. Um, all we've done is we've invalidated one species, or at least we've learned one way in which Christianity cannot be true. But you still have Eastern Orthodoxy, you still have Catholicism left on the table, right? Those are other mm -hmm. ways that Christianity can be true. So what, I'm doing the same thing with the design argument, which is like, okay, well, you have this species, you have this genus called design arguments, and you have different species that have of design arguments that have been put forth throughout the years. And I think that if we find out that one doesn't work, uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that uh, the genus falls apart. I think that what we can do is we can take on biology uh, the way it is revealed through contemporary evolutionary theory. And we can say, well, there are many things about artifacts of biology that still reflect more of mind-like intentionality than they do um, uh, if we were to look at the world metaphysically bedrock as unintentional kind of, there's no guiding force or there's no selection pressures for anything to develop in any particular way. And I think that um, there are certain, certain artifacts in biology like that. I think that um, one is uh, biological convergence and then the uh, ineliminability of uh, teleology, or at least just direction within biology. And then I think uh, a, the most, even at the most basic example and foundations being, you know, cellular entities, right? Cell-to-cell uh, -cell communication, um, you know, their, po their, their proofreading and post-proofreading mechanisms for, um, you know, uh, ruling, uh, ruling out and making sure that mutations don't, you know, get into the system, um, you know, different mechanisms for uh, moving genes and altering genes and whatnot, you know, so I think this reflects those kind of artifacts are still consistent with evolution because they drive evolution, but I don't think that they are, um, I think they are incredibly friendly to this idea that there is a, a bottom intentionality, right, because we observe properties looking like intentionality or, or you know, analogous to within uh, biology itself. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think this is helpful how, let's just look at like the picture you gave of like Christian theism. So like if we look at it in Christian three, Christian theism, there's three main branches. We have like the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, and like Protestant, Protestantism. Um, now, if we think about it, like say we like get rid of like this idea of like the Catholic church, um, there's still these other models of Christianity that are still out there and uh, Christian theism, like the probability of Christian theism isn't necessarily going to like decrease as a result of that. Um, not necessarily. That's not what I believe. Um, I'm not Catholic, but I'm not like, oh, that's just crazy. Uh, but just just an example here. 
Now, if we think about like evolutionary theory, what Dawkins is saying is like, hey, like we have Darwin, he comes around, here's evolutionary theory, it just destroys design arguments. Like we're done. Uh, like pack up your bags and stuff like that. And what you're kind of bringing up is like, hey, we have to kind of ask like, what are the mecha mechanisms here when we're looking at this evolutionary theory? Because sure, maybe some models will, like would totally destroy like design. Like say it's just like chance on random mutations in time. Like that doesn't seem very design friendly. But there are other models of evolution. Like there's the whole like modern synthesis, um, the extended synthesis. And there's a lot of models at play here. And depending on what's true, these could some of these could be very design friendly, and some of these may not be. So it's just not like end of story. Like Darwin kills design. Like go home. Like that's just not what's going on here. Hundred percent. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, other reasons that have been offered, for example, people claim to have a subjective experience, a personal experience of God. Well. We all know how easily people are fooled. We all know how easily people hallucinate, how they easily they imagine, how easily they dream. Uh, so that's an extremely poor argument in favor of the existence of a god. Um, what do you think about Dawkins and personal experience here, Tim? Um, I think he's incredibly overstating the case. I think he's he's um, he's falling into a trap that many um, uh, either atheists who haven't chosen to kind of adopt a sophisticated way of looking at things do, which is this trap of only relying on prior probabilities. Um, he's basically saying, well, hey, we have all this background evidence that um, those who have or claim to have religious experiences, um, you know, there's a, we have a large track record or at least vault of, of evidence that these people have been mistaken in the past. Um, and so he says, well, then the prior probability is very low that uh, a religious experience uh or at least that there is any veracity to religious experiences my issue with that is that um we don't need to only and solely rely on prior probabilities here and i'm just i'm i'm just granting his argument i don't even agree with him 100 percent that um that all claimed religious experiences are invalid in some sense uh, I think there's a lot of religious experiences to sift through if you're going to make that claim. Um, if he's going to say that it's the norm, not the ex and it's the norm, and it's the exception to have um, these truthful religious experiences, um, then I'm going to need to see that kind of evidence, right? And we're going to need to do that kind of comparison. But I'm going to say that when it comes to religious experiences on the personal level and things, even if the prior probability is low, that these uh, experiences. Um, are probably false, um, then, oh, sorry, if the, if the prior probability is low that these religious experiences are true, then all we need is evidence, right? You, uh, all you need is outweighing evidence to basically overcome the loss in, or at least the lacking prior probabilities. This is, you know, straightforward Bayesian epistemology, right? This is how it works, right? If you have a low prior, um, if you surmount enough evidence, uh, you can eventually overcome the low prior. Um, and on total probability, right, that's what we care about is total probability, then you can, you know, see what it's like when you look at, well, total evidence. Um, so I think that we need to look at all the evidence. And specifically, though, I think that when it comes to personal religious experiences, um, that's going to be something that increases someone's um, credences, right? Uh, these are your kind of personal degrees of confidence in certain propositions, right? And I think that we have to be careful with that because my own first person experiences that I only have access to um, 
I could have a religious experience and never tell anyone about it. Um, and I could take it to my grave and no one would know I had a religious experience except me. Um, mm -hmm. And so it depends on how it makes an impression on me. There's a kind of a degree of subjectivity here when it comes to making these judgments. Uh, and so it really depends on how much stock a particular person is going to put in, in a, any particular religious experience. But I don't think that you can you can't say that it's not even a drop in the bucket of evidence at all for somebody. Right. I think that it can be. I think someone can say, well, you know, if I look at I mean, now most people are not going to do it like this. Right. But since we're we like to be analytic here. Right. This is kind of what it would look like. The exercise could be, well, I had this experience. Uh, I was highly spiritual. I had this religious experience. Um in a way where I feel like I've apprehended some kind of communication with God. Um, well, I, there's all these other theories on the table. Atheism, it would be what, like the probability is so low uh, that atheism would at least give me this seem this internal seeming that I would have, you know, had some kind of communication with God. Right. Mm. There's this idea of like, why, like, like, why should that be expected on atheism? Now, it could be consistent, metaphysically consistent on atheism. We can grant that. But in terms of like an epistemic probability judgment, right? Someone could say that. Um, because, okay, well, that's going to be a job in the bucket for my uh, belief in God. Now, to say that, and Dawkins might be falling into this, to say that this is all of your evidence for God, I don't think anyone should say that a, a particular experience should be all of their evidence. Um, I think that, um, that it is an evidential chip. But to what degree does it increase the proposition that God exists? I don't think it increases it above like a 0.5. I don't think it does. But I definitely can think it can be a part of a cumulative collection of evidence. I think that it can be a part of that. Hmm. One thing I want to add here, Tim, and maybe this isn't directly related to what you're saying, like or like how like personal experience can like add to like the cumulative weight of theism, even if maybe it's not a lot, is the idea that and this is something that uh, friend of the channel like Emerson Green, like in case you're new here, who's an atheist by the way, um, he's talked about like the common consent argument for God and this idea that like there's a lot of common agreement about the existence of God throughout the world, mm -hmm. uh, and by that I don't mean necessarily mean like religions, like obviously there's a lot of religious disagreement. But general ideas like, oh, there is a God um, or, oh, there's a being who created the universe or, oh, there's a spiritual world and like materialism is false. Like some of these ideas, um, while the details will definitely differ, uh, these very like general basic ideas seem fundamental through most of human experience. Uh, and to say there is no God or there are no spiritual beings or something like this goes against what most people, even today, um, especially as you go throughout history, believed. It doesn't mean that like, like, oh, therefore God exists, but it's just like another thing to consider here when we're thinking about personal experiences. Like this is a very common phenomenon throughout the world, which seems like it would provide some like weight for the evidence, like for God, because it'd be more expected if God did exist than if God did not exist. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I, I, uh, I think that's really interesting. And, and, and someone can make some kind of like evolutionary argument, right? And they could say, mm -hmm. well, um, I'm going to try to uh, come up with some kind of um, evolutionary story. Right. Barring the uh, the theoretical, uh, you know, strictures we put on whether or not the on how probable these stories are. I don't even want to get into that, but there's a really good paper written by Doherty and Proust on that. Um, basically, um, someone could come up with some evolutionary story trying to show that, uh, well, um, you know, this would be a matter of course that people would develop a you know, widespread God belief. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, that's perfectly. Yeah, it's still metaphysically consistent um with atheism but on a on just an epistemic probability judgment like 
that would that's putty in the theist's hand. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like conscious moral agents, you know, um, eventually like developing widespread God belief, um, like that seems to be like what you would expect. Like that's extremely friendly to theism. Um, um, and the, and but like the fact that it came through a gradual process doesn't mean like anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even if that's someone were to make that kind of argument, like 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 on just a likelihood judgment, um, theism is going to be much more. Um, it's going to increase the probability of you know us even observing that happening, um, just uh, given kind of the uh, the properties of of these kind of events and these occurrences. So I think that's um, just another point that you can add to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, what other arguments are there? The argument from first cause, well, that shoots itself in the foot because if you're going to postulate a God as a first cause, you've then got a really big problem explaining where the God came from. The whole point of the Darwinian enterprise is that it explains how you can get complexity and the illusion of design from primordial simplicity. So the argument from first cause shoots itself in the foot. Um, All right, what do you think here, Tim? Is the first cause argument just like... A waste of time <laughs> so you know um <laughs> sorry this is uh i'm just what's flashing through my head right now is like all of the most like sophisticated and rigorous literature that's ever been written on mm-hmm. first cause arguments yeah, and I'm just like thinking about like some of the most advanced objections that's ever been like presented against it. And I'm like looking at this mm-hmm. and I'm going like, you know, uh, like um, it's so overwhelming that you don't even know where to start with yeah. this kind of reply. Um, well, here I can go. I can start here. Yeah, and I think just like and this will be brief, just like one important like distinction to remember here is that when we're looking at like cosmological arguments um like the kalam or contingency arguments what they're arguing for is something that exists um uncaused and necessarily so if you asked what caused god well like the theist would say well nothing nothing caused god um and like the whole one of the main points of these arguments is they're trying to argue for some sort of like uncaused thing that's responsible for everything else that exists and i think that's an important distinction to remember when we're thinking about this 100 100 yeah it's, it's i mean it's interesting that you know he he thinks that this argument from that that there is some kind of mysteriousness about the existence of a first cause if you posit a first cause you know explanation is meant to reduce mystery Mm -hmm. um but i don't know anyone who would say that an explanation to be an explanation must reduce all mysteries possible um, so even if I were to say, yeah, um, I don't know where this first causes, like what is the origin or what grounds the origin of this first cause, that doesn't mean that I can't postulate a first cause as the explanation because explanation primarily removes mystery. So compare two theses, right? One is that we have like let's say contingent things right um and all of these causable beings right and then we have this initial entity with with particular properties that got the process going right um well 
what you have is you have all of the contingent things, um, or at least all of the causal history and entities that occupy that causal history. And then you have like um, an initial entity that all of that depends upon. And so you have history over here that cries out for explanation. And then you have this, uh, this initial cause over here, which we call the first cause that cries out for explanation. And if we were to say that, well, in atheism, both of these would remain mysterious because we can't explain why history, the entire causal network obtained. And then we can't uh, explain why this initial um, foundation, this, this initial entity, this initial state obtained either. Um, whereas on more of a theism, right, we could say we could explain the existence of causal history. That's one mystery removed. And we could say, yeah, by postulating this first cause with these particular properties. But then there's the mystery about like, um, like, why does this thing have this kind of robust existence that it has? And then that mm -hmm. leave that question open. Well, notice, Zach, on the atheism, um, or at least that, that kind of version of atheism that I'm pointing out, um, there's two mysteries. But then on the theist, more, more of a theistic um, picture, there's one mystery. Well, we've satisfied explanation because we've removed more mystery than the rival theory. So if we're comparing theories and we're looking at comparing the merits and demerits, we'd say, well, the merits of one theory is that it's removed more mystery than the other. And the demerits of the other theory is that it has, it's, it's, com it, it's increased the mystery, you know, it's it just increased it some more. So if I'm mm -hmm. going to, I'm going to look at it that way, well, I'm going to choose theism because at least I'm able to remove more mystery than atheism. Even if I'm not able to explain, you know, uh, in a very robust and, and satisfying way, uh, why my particular postulation has the robust existence that it does. Um, so that's one way you could do that. Um, that gets, you know, just granting his uh, idea here. Um, the other reason is to um, say that, um, you know, there are, there are good arguments in favor of the metaphysical thesis of metaphysical foundationalism um, that is going to, you know, the veracity of which exists regardless of whether atheism or theism is true, right? Um, and uh, Jonathan Schaffer, for example, he's an atheist, uh, and he's a priority monist uh, of the metaphysical foundationalist variety, right? Uh, he thinks there is a bedrock foundation, right? And it's going to have to have um, this, uh, in this, this kind of existence where, like, it couldn't be any way otherwise, right? So um, atheists and theists can both kind of adopt that idea, right? I don't know yeah. if his um, if his idea here would be to opt in for like a metaphysical um, infinitism, right? Where we have to postulate um, found uh, in, uh, in kind of a, a foundations all the way down or whatnot, or if it's just we're going to opt in for uh, brute facts and brute facts, right? But like, here's like the range of options you can go with. And it's not just going to be the theist that gets away with the first cause. Um, it's going to be, whether or not you find a metaphysical foundationalist kind of thesis about reality uh, convincing or not. That's, that's the way I'm going to put it. I'm going to take it out of the worldview discussion. I'm going to just go into like metaphysical discussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be helpful here just to kind of think about it this way. Uh, so let's just look at that for like, 
like just trying to think about it like if i were an atheist like kind of how would i think about this um and like one way you could explain everything is say like well maybe there's just some sort of like infinite regress um where we're like we trace causal history and we get like to like the singularity and there's something on the other end that causes our singularity and it just keeps on going back forever and there's just cause upon cause upon cause um in that sense if you if you maybe the science comes out right and you get a mechanism um that's great we have a nice mechanism for like how the universe could like um bounce like into like inflate Mm -hmm. and then maybe like deflate and come back together uh and whatnot there's still this mystery of like, okay, like if that's the case, why is this whole thing there in the first place? Like, why is there this infinite chain that goes back forever? Yeah. Um, and there's still mystery there. And maybe you want to say, well, that's just the way it is. And yeah. that kind of like gets to the point of like the theist where we're like, hey, we got to get to something where we're just like, hey, that's just the way it is. Um, the theist wants to say that it, like it's God, like a single necessary, like simple mind. And at that point, then we get to the idea of just like theory comparison where let's just look at God. Let's look at an infinite regress or whatever your theory is and just compare them and see like, what reduces mystery the best, what explains the yeah. world the best. Um, and then we're just rolling. So I think that like, if you really like buckle down and like trace down um, maybe like where an ultimate theory would go, we're going to get to somewhere that like someone like a theist would want to argue from. Yeah. I'm kind of putting on my Rasmussen hat for a second. You know, we want to keep Richard Dawkins on the bridge of reason. And so we could say Dawkins, you know, you can believe in a first cause too. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't have to look like it doesn't, being committed to a first cause doesn't mean that you believe that, that, that you believe in a in any kind of Abrahamic faith, right? Uh, you know, um, where you know you're venerating a blessed virgin, right? Like that's not like what that's going to commit you to automatically. Um, but what is it is it's going to put you in the camp of many other very intelligent um, and intellectually fulfilled, to use such a term, atheists like Graham Oppy, like Jonathan Schaffer, right? Um, uh, like uh, I think Bede Rundle or I forget his name. He wrote um, um, oh, what was that book? Um, Why there is something rather than nothing. Um, you know all of these other guys. Um, you know he's going to be in great company. So this doesn't have to be. A, yeah, we don't got to be afraid of this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up. Um, Pascal's wager. Uh, you're better off betting that there is a God because if you lose the bet, then you go to hell. That's a silly argument because it depends on, it it assumes that you know which God it is for a start. If you bet on Yahweh that turns out to be Baal or Thor, then then you're in trouble. Um, uh, What else? Um, Oh, in any case, even if it was Yahweh, uh, you might well say that Yahweh would rather have somebody honest who thinks for himself rather than somebody who slavishly pretends to believe something. So there are no good arguments in favor of, of, of a God. And that's all one needs to say. All right. Well, there's the video. Uh, Tim, like, how do you want to wrap this up? Well, you know, I, I, I agree with his last point, actually, which is like, if there are no good arguments for the existence of God, then that's all one needs to say. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I, I agree. If there were no good arguments for the existence of God, then you could tell you could tell the theist. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of these arguments are good. So, you know. Uh, if you have any new ones, we can kind of reconvene and we can discuss them, right? Yeah. Um, and then, but but that wouldn't make you an atheist either. Like it wouldn't necessarily imply atheism on that point. So um, I I think it, it could uh, put you in other camps, but I don't think it would it would make you automatically an atheist. So the interesting part about, about that last statement about Pascal's wager and all these different things is, um, you know, I think that um, you know Paul Draper's worry about. Uh, the fallacy of understated evidence is a really interesting one to kind of a helpful heuristic here, which is like, 
well, I think that Dawkins greatly understated the evidence for theism. Well, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm picking like a multitude of plurality of books and papers on the subject on evidence for theism. Um, and of course, the most rigorous and sophisticated arguments and evidence for theism, you know, are not included in this list. Um, you know, like for me as a personally, as a theist, if you were to ask me, like, what is the best evidence for God? I would have not have named a single point that Dawkins brought up. Mm-hmm. I don't use first cause arguments, right? Um, like, um, I'm, I've, I'm actually developing my own um, a variety of cosmological arguments that's like I've seen defended literally by no one else. So like, like it, there's a variety and there's a whole landscape of ways in which you can demonstrate metaphysically God's existence. Um, and these ones, I, I think, are not dealing with the heavyweights. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, like, you know, if I were to be presenting like, hey, here's like historically, like here are some reasons why people have presented, uh, you know, why one should believe in God. Right. Um, I could say, you know, these are very simple, like articulations of some reasons of why people said, you know, to be theists. Um, but then I would move on from that and I would go, well, here's some more. Right. And then here's how they've been built out over time. Right. And here's how they've been improved upon. And, he said, and this is how the discussions have unfolded. And here's, and here's like the tackling of objections, right? So um, I, w- I would say that if someone had come to me and with Richard Dawkins' arguments and say, yeah, I just don't think there's a good argument for God. I would say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that you're thinking about things like that. I'm glad that you're thinking through these things. Um, but the work isn't done. And, um, and then I would like nudge them in a particular direction. And then we can have further conversation. So that's just kind of like the way I look at it. Yeah, I totally agree with you that, like, there's more, like, nuance to this debate. Um, I'd encourage people to realize that, like, hey, like, a five-minute YouTube video is going to, like, answer this debate. Our 30, 35, 40-minute, like, however long this video is, like, this isn't going to end the debate on, like, theism and atheism, like, these arguments that even, like, Dawkins brought up. Like, there's a mm-hmm. lot of nuance here, like you said, and we just have to be, like, show the virtues and just, like, be kind, considerate, and realize that, like, we're limited in what we know and just try our best from where we know and just not claim to have all the answers. Uh, not saying that Dawkins does that, but it's just like that's a helpful way to look at this to realize, hey, that I just have a lot to learn because the more I mm-hmm. learn, the more I realize I just there's just stuff I don't know. Um, what do you make of like his point? Like it seems like he brought it like almost like a version of the many gods objection where he's like, hey, if you uh, maybe like believe in God, but it's the wrong God, maybe you're in more in trouble, like in more trouble than someone who uh, maybe just believes in no God at all. Yeah. Um, so um, I think that uh, that like that really only exists for certain conceptions of God where like there is this threat of hell um, Mm -hmm. for not believing. And I mean, ultimately like, like the afterlife regardless is epistemically closed off to us. Um, Like the happenings of an afterlife are epistemically closed off to us. Um, So at the end of the day, everyone's making approximations about their afterlife states, for example. But but I think that yeah. when it comes to, like, I'm a fallibilist in my epistemology. I can always be wrong. Like, any concept I have can either, I can be mistaken about what the concept means or it can be re- later re- on revised, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, un- like, uncontroversial to say, well, I could also be wrong. Well, yeah, like, like we're always approximating what could be, right? So that part, uh, to me, is just like, okay, like, that's... Um, that's not controversial whatsoever. Um, but I think that if you, if you take, if you are, you know, if your credences are higher in this idea that if it, God does exist, it's more so the kind of holy good type, right? Uh, 
uh, perfect goodness, you know, omnibenevolence, then, then it's going to come down to whether or not you think uh, something like the Islamic conception of God is a good candidate for that. Or if you're going to think it's more of the Christian conception of God. Um, and, um, and then you might end up, you know, believing that, well, uh, hell, if there is a hell, right, and you understand like what hell means in certain ways, then you might be more sympathetic to views, maybe like a universalist kind of view, where, uh, well, if God is holy good, right, then um, any kind of uh, negative things that happen to people are ultimately for their own good in the end, right? And that's why hell's not, that's why hell's going to remain empty um, at some point in the future. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, like, it just, it just depends on like evidence. It depends on how we're making our probabilistic judgments it depends on what you're sympathetic to. And we could always be wrong. So like I could have all this evidence, I could have all these ideas and I could later find out that like I was off and I missed the mark completely. There's nothing I can do about that. Right. Um, you know, with realities, but like, I don't want to speculate about things that are epistemically closed off to us. I want to be able to reason about what we have epistemic access to. And I think the things that we do have epistemic access to can provide us with interesting judgments or interesting conclusions that we could still keep talking about for the future, maybe even revise certain things that we've once understood in a certain way and understand mm -hmm. them in different ways. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for doing this today. It's been a lot of fun and I want to like get back at this more with you because it's so much fun. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, uh, and I learn a lot just from hearing you speak. Uh, anything else you want to say about like Dawkins or this video or anything like this before we wrap up? No, man. Um, it's good. Like, I, I, you know, uh, I was speaking with Zach, um, prior to this. And, uh, you know, I just look at Dawkins with a lot of empathy and compassion. Um, and I think that, um, you know, he's a, not a dumb guy whatsoever. Um, uh, but I do wish that, you know, um, out of all of the books that have been published on his work, um, out of all of the sophisticated theistic replies to his work, I just wish that he, um, would have a sit down and reevaluate, um, his worldview in, in light of those things. And I think that there'll be many people I would want to, have that sincere conversation with him in that way. I know that he recently did a uh, a, a in-person uh, conversation or discussion, panel discussion on the mystery of existence where Richard Swinburne was there. And I'm like, ooh, Richard Dawkins and Richard Swinburne discussing the mystery of existence. Um, that's a weird stacking of, uh, of like competitors. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think that uh, if anyone is able to... Um, you know, prompt a reevaluation. Uh, it would be Richard Swinburne, right? I know that he's pretty up there in age now, and he, and um, and things, but his work still uh, will stand the test of time. So I think that's uh, my opinion on Dawkins on that, and I think that uh, you know, hopefully that uh, people look at the things that Dawkins are saying and they remain unsatisfied with that being the entire landscape of philosophy of religion and mm, and what yeah. can't be discussed. So. Well, Tim, thanks to you. thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I enjoyed it a lot. And yeah, I just encourage people, like, just like keep reading, keep listening to videos, keep arguing um, in a respectful and honorable way, um, and just keep looking to grow. Like, Tim doesn't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. Uh, but we'll just keep learning and growing together. And hopefully this video can help serve you in your journey. Uh, I'll leave a link down below where you can follow Tim, um, just invoking theism. And that's that, everyone. If you're new to Here in Apologetics, I encourage you to like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider coming to Patreon, patreon.com slash Here in Apologetics. But Tim, thank you so much for coming on today. This was thank fun. Thank you, man. Have a good one, everyone, and God bless.